Welcome back to the show. It's been two weeks since the last episode, and I'm sorry for the lack of a heads up. I needed some time to work on a few grants to help fund Crude through 2020, but we're back on schedule now. So thank you for your patience. On to this week's episode. In this one, I have a conversation with Olympian and climate activist Callan Chythluk Sifsoff. Callan's life has been a mixture of snowboarding, social justice, and climate change. She was raised in Alegnagik, Alaska, a village of about 300, just outside Dillingham. Alegnagik, like Dillingham, is a community that relies on fishing and is located near Pebble Mine. So Callan has been around the Pebble Mine controversy since it began, which led to her early involvement in activism. Alongside that activism, she's worked as a professional snowboarder, competing in the Olympics, as well as meddling in many endemic competitions. In 2011, she started working with Protect Our Winters, also known as POW, as a climate ambassador. Since then, she has presented on climate awareness and spoken to Congress about climate awareness. In 2014, she unofficially retired from professional snowboarding after three back-to-back knee surgeries leading up to the Sochi Olympics, and then injured her knee during the qualifying Olympic season. She is currently the head coach for the Park City Border Cross team. Okay, here's where I give the company men a shout out. These are the people who have subscribed to the Crew Patreon for $50 or more. Trina Duber, Seward Brewing Company, The Grind Coffee Shop in Juneau, Derek Adolf, Blue and Gold Board Shop, Sharon Liska, Alaska Surf Adventure, and the newest company man, Aquila Space. Thank you to all the Patreon subscribers. This podcast wouldn't be possible without you. If you subscribe to the Crude Magazine Patreon, thank you. Your money helps keep these conversations going. So if you enjoy these conversations, you can subscribe at www.patreon.com slash crude magazine. That's patreon.com slash crude magazine. And pick the subscription tier that works for you. Okay, back to Callan Chythluk Sifsoff. Looking at Callan's life, she's always fought against injustice. She's always been on the side of the underrepresented and the disadvantaged. She knows that, to achieve success, you need to be mindful of all the small decisions along the way. She understands that change can be slow and meandering, which is why patience is important. She says that, as humans, we can get very narrow and very linear. And the reality is, you can't do anything if you have a linear perspective because it's just not the truth of our world. So here she is, Callan Chythluk Sifsoff. <laughs> this red light right here, it means we're recording. Okay, fired up. Crude conversations. Listen more than you talk. Go to work. We are recording, Callan. All right. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for uh, thanks for being on the show. I um, I'm really excited to talk to you. I've been doing <laughs> hours and hours of research on you. <laughs> ha, I uh, I'm afraid to hear what you found out, but but looking forward to the interview. <laughs> All good things. All good things. Uh, so your Instagram handle is Callan the Great. It is. Is there a story behind that? No, there's not a real story. I've, I kind of, so the early part of my career, I didn't really have social media kind of at my disposal. And then um, halfway through, I just kind of thought of an Instagram handle. Actually, I think it might have been kind of copied from a World Cup athlete from Sweden or something like that. But, but yeah, no, no real story. Just kind of picked it. Just kind of picked it. Okay. Well, that's great. Yeah. So to drop into this, Earlier this week, we were texting and you told me that you spoke at a congressional hearing a few months ago on behalf of Protect Our Winters and the Arctic National Wild Refuge, Wildlife Refuge. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so that was kind of a, an opportunity that was thrown together last minute. Um, and uh, so POW 
was invited to have a delegation of people come to D.C. to talk um, and speak at this congressional hearing. And so basically, I think uh, a number of names were kind of thrown in the mix. And then um, and then I was invited by um, Representative Holland from New Mexico. And so she's currently the chairwoman of that um, committee. And so, yeah, it was a super big honor. Um, I, I was really uh, kind of nervous leading up to it. And so, yeah, and so actually I had a whole script um, that I was working from and ended up just kind of speaking off the cuff the whole congressional hearing and it went really well um yeah it, it was a good opportunity just to kind of highlight um the fact that i'm from alaska and also have a personal tie to um, protection of of the refuge but also just kind of on a on a global scale and in terms of um winter sports uh industries and uh and then just as a as humanity in general, it's imperative that we kind of stop our fossil fuel extraction um, before it's too late and before, um, you know, the parts per million of carbon in the atmosphere continues to climb every year. And the more we extract, the more we're guaranteed to increase those numbers. So, so um, yeah, a really good opportunity to kind of speak from a lens of being Alaska Native and kind of how how important the land is for us as indigenous people and then also as a snowboarder um, traveling the world and how important it is seeing globally that changing snowpack and how it affects our sport, our economy, our industries. So kind of, it was, yeah, really cool to tie all those pieces in. What was that experience like? Uh, were they receptive to what you were saying? Yeah, you know, I think I've, I first started working with POW about, um, let's see, 2011 or, or 12. And back then, climate change, if, if you said you believed in climate change or, or spoke to the topic, it was almost kind of taboo in all circles. Back then, you kind of were labeled as like a liberal, um, radical. Um, and now every year, I think we're getting closer and closer to a place where we can all talk about it in a in a realistic way where it doesn't have any tropes or uh it doesn't mean you're a republican or a liberal that we can all kind of start to talk about this as a real phenomenon and uh, you know after that it yields itself to doing something about this so we can change our world but but yeah it's crazy how much different um you know like the uh the climate is in politics right now it's actually pretty cool. There was a little bit of pushback. Um, I think there was one senator that kind of read his remarks, and um, they were very much pro pro extraction. But other than that, there was just a huge amount of support across the board from that committee. So, and so you said that there seems to be a lot of support now. Have you seen? anything happen as the result of that or does it just kind of seem like maybe a facade like they're they're on board in front of you but then when it's time for action they don't deliver you know it's like such a complex um all these mechanisms are very complex in our politics and so you know that that particular hearing um was a was a house hearing and so i think in general from House politicians, there's a lot more like of a, a tie to community and a ability to speak to those that level of um, of our political system where they can understand your emotional tie to the land. They can understand because they they're local politics more so than they are national politics. Mm -hmm. So for that reason, we kind of expected a lot of, um, you know, support and um, but then as soon as, you know, it goes up the chain, things become a lot more complex. But I was happy that we um, actually that measure passed. And so after that hearing, um, it did pass. But as you guys know, or as everyone knows, um, you know, there's many different steps and parts and pieces to how these things happen. So for sure. Um, there are a lot of climate change deniers out there. What do you think? needs to happen for those deniers to become believers? Um, yeah, that's like a super hard question, but um, I think outreach and the more the more organizations like POW and individuals 
kind of connect into organizations like this, um, the more we're having conversations about these topics. And so that's, that's as slow as it gets, but that's, I think, about as good as it gets right now is just continue to talk about it. Um, I, I remember at a POW summit, a Protect Our Winners summit one year, um, I'd heard Jeremy Jones say kind of a line about how dangerous the pursuit of perfection is. Um, and we're kind of talking about, about as athletes, how we can talk about these, these things, climate change, the importance of, of um, getting off of fossil fuels as a whole in this world. And then how, you know, sometimes hypocritical it is to be traveling the world while you're saying everyone should stop using fossil fuels. And what it comes down to, I think, is um, Jeremy is totally right. The pursuit of perfection um, and people kind of waiting to talk about climate change because they're like, well, I snow machine all, all year and I work on the slope, so I have to deny that it's happening because of my the way I live my life. And the reality is, you know, we're all reliant on fossil fuels right now. And, um, you know, I like to snow machine and waste gas a lot of the time, but that doesn't mean that it's it's not very important we all talk about climate and what we should be doing individually every year. So that's kind of, um, I think, the most valuable lesson that POW offers is that we're all trying, we're all talking. The, you know, Jeremy's not a scientist. He did the best he could, and he, he put together this nonprofit. Um, and it's really taken up some wheels. And now we have, um, you know, a political action fund. And then we have, you know, a, a coalition of scientists. And so um, for me, it's been really motivating um, and super positive to see such a breadth of different types of people working together from politicians that work with POW to um, athletes that work with POW from all different backgrounds, you know, liberal, less liberal, hunters, anglers, snowboarders. And there's really no way to solve this problem of climate without having every different type of demographic talking about this stuff. I think that's super encouraging what you said, Jeremy Jones says, uh, which is how dangerous the pursuit of perfection is. Because I think that more often than not, we can get too caught up in the end result, right? As opposed to the journey. Yeah, totally. I fully agree. And and the reality is if we all wait, like for me, you know, I went to Finland um, <clears throat> a couple months ago and I felt kind of weird about it. I was like, well, I just had a congressional hearing where I talked about the imperative to to curb fossil fuels and still I'm I'm traveling. And that's really what it comes down to. Like we have to make incremental changes in our life. And um and if everyone just stops and is like, oh dude, I can't talk about climate because I I'm going to Africa next month, then none of us are gonna talk about it, you know? So mm -hmm. yeah. Well it's like being on a diet or starting a diet. You know, you you have to do it in small steps. You can't just cut out all the meat if you want to be a vegetarian. You have to do it in steps. Right. True, true. And then there's another part and component to it, which is kind of another, that's my uh, personal kind of ethics on on the issue itself. But, um, you know, not speaking for POW here, but in my opinion, the impact, it's not just an opinion. There's a lot of data behind it, um, especially coming out of um, the Yale Climate Connections campaign, and that can be found online, but essentially there's a lot of data that shows the difference between individuals' um, carbon impact and the difference between industrial carbon impact. And so we can see the, um, the imprint of, of our industries of mining, fossil fuel extraction. Um, yeah, there's just an astronomically higher level that affects our planet coming from industry than from individual use. So anyway. No, that's that's great. I think that that's something that um, a lot of people, including myself, that I just don't consciously think of. Because when I think of climate change, it it's kind of like a personal issue for me all of a sudden. You know, like I need to stop driving so much. I need to stop buying single-use plastic, you mm -hmm. know. True, which is totally valid and 100%, we all do need it to be doing, but 
at the same time realizing all these different nuances. I think it, as <clears throat> now I'm getting kind of philosophical, but as humans, we can kind of get really narrow and very, very uh, linear. And the reality is you can't do anything if you have a linear perspective because it's just not the truth of our world. We have so many complexities, hypocrisies, and they're all important to hold, you know? I think that's great. We can't have a linear perspective. I mean, when you're going through life, you're constantly changing and evolving. You may have, say, started out college or gotten into college from a certain perspective, like, I want to, I want this goal. I want to be a doctor. But you're thinking about that journey as linear rather than like nonlinear. You know, you're going to take a right, you're going to take a hard left, and eventually you're going to reach that end point. That end point is never going to look like how you imagined it would. Exactly. Yeah. That's a good point. Yeah. And it's been actually cool to see, um, in terms of people kind of realizing these nuances, um, the positive note of it is the last couple of years, in my opinion, I've seen huge changes. And uh, last summer, I was actually invited to go with POW to the um, Global Climate Action Summit in San Francisco. And uh, during that time, basically, I mean, we were just attending these meetings. Um, most of them were very kind of high-level meetings with kind of politicians, um, banks from all over the world, kind of every different part and piece to the conversation you can imagine. And then all the way down to like tribes from the Amazon, tribes from all over the world speaking to their perspectives. Um, and it was pretty flooring for me to, to listen to and kind of go from one room when there was um, the CEOs of of Deutsche Bank and like major banks around the world talking about what they're doing to mitigate things and to listen to um, parts of our of our global climate community. Um, and then you'd go to the next room and there was a, you know, a tribe from the Amazon with people um, listening to their perspective on that and then the CEO of Starbucks. So just like a fascinating kind of window into like how these conversations are happening right now. Did anything stick out to you in maybe the difference or similarities between an Amazon culture talking to a more like Western culture or company like Starbucks? Yeah, yeah. So it was funny. I don't, you know, I don't know how accurate this is. This is all just kind of my my perspective during that that couple months. But but uh, you know, I've worked with Pow kind of for quite a while now. And I, I haven't ever heard um, the call for indigenous voices to be heard, really, up until the last few years. I've always kind of honestly probably held my indigenous part of myself a little bit underneath my snowboard side of myself, just by the nature of it, just because I, you know, I'm in this circle and I'm more of a snowboarder here than I am an indigenous person. Um, but it was crazy at the Climate Action Summit how um, almost every session um, the highest levels, uh, people were using these kind of buzzwords of we need to listen to indigenous cultures that have been protecting the planet for for millennia. Um, and so, um, and I know that's a kind of nuanced, that's, that's a whole different ball of wax that we can talk about and kind of deconstruct. But, um, but it was so powerful for me to hear, um, even at the, you know, the one with the Starbucks CEO in it, he was actually talking to an indigenous person on the panel. Um, anyway, it's just the the conversation is evolving every year. And for me, um, that was the coolest part was to kind of see, well, I actually see leaders from um, the Gwich'in tribe speaking to the crowd mm -hmm. and, ha and then seeing, uh, you know, those people in the crowd speaking about about the Gwich'in person they heard talk. And uh, anyway, I'm kind of rambling, but. No, this is, this is great. I, I like this. Uh, I like where this is going. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, so it was, it was, um, I think more and more um, we're kind of getting a little bit smarter in the world with internet and, and the amount of information we have at our disposal. Um, so we really can learn about these, these other ways of living, these other policies, these other, um, technologies that we can utilize 
And in order to get out of the climate change crisis we're in, we have to kind of all connect uniformly, you know. I want to get back to something you said just now. We need to listen to these indigenous cultures is something that we're realizing. Maybe we can kind of unpack that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's a really complex topic in and of itself, especially in Alaska, um, all across the nation and the world, actually. And well, my partner right now, she's um, studying uh, environmental policy at Berkeley right now in a PhD program. And so her kind of lens focuses on um, critical race theory. And so her stuff is way more in depth than than my lens. But, but um, it has been kind of incredible to watch where academia is headed with kind of deconstructing race in our country, in our world. In Alaska, we, we all kind of know that we have um, many different native corporations that kind of stand for a different thing. Um, and in America specifically and in Alaska, we have a really interesting um, intersection of politics and race and politics and indigenous topics like land, um, reservations, um, native allotment, subsistence rights. And so in Alaska, in my opinion, it's it's kind of a chaos for me. I think we have a lot of different mechanisms at play with native corporations all across the state and politics that are maybe not the most healthy. But that's, you know, everyone's got a different opinion about that kind of stuff. But in the end, I think at our roots, at, at my culture's roots, the Yupik people, um, I can really only speak for myself, but but uh, I, I was taught my entire life, and, and my grandpa didn't speak English till he was 10 years old, and a place like Aleknigik, Alaska, and Dillingham, Alaska, where I grew up, these places still have fluent Yupik speakers um, on a daily basis all over, and people are taught to to uh, pay attention to the land, pay attention to to all these little nuances of where berries grow each summer in relation to the previous summer. And these are things you grow up kind of as just a normal part of your existence of, of recognizing. And oftentimes I feel that's something we share in the outdoor community. Um, and when I'm with people with Protect Our Winners, oftentimes it feels similar to like the people I grew up with where at the core of this group, you've spent your entire life outside and you've spent your entire life undeniably watching these environmental factors just over the course of, of many, many years. And you can't separate it. As a result, you have a, a deep connection to your surroundings and the mountains and the rivers around you. Mm-hmm. So for me, um, while you can't generalize, you can't quite say like, oh, all indigenous people are environmentalists. Um, the truth is at the root of these cultures, that is that is what we represent. So as we've gotten farther from the land as humans, what do you think that does to us? Yeah, it's. I think it's our environment's everything. Like if you put me in New York City for five years, I might be a whole different person. You know, I might have, I might stop hiking all the time and start liking, you know, whatever it is. But just being aware, it's it's imperative. We can't um, separate ourselves from the environment because this is where we live. And maybe it's kind of an older thought process of like national parks are over there and um, and then we live in the city and we go on our two-week vacation once a year to see them. That's kind of an old thought. I think we're kind of evolving out of this, this um, compartmentalizing our environment. I think we're starting to realize that hiking is in our backyard and it's not a national park that you take your kids on an RV park to. It's something that's here, like right outside our house, you know? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Well, and I think in Alaska, we kind of, I don't know about most other people, but when I first came down here to the lower 48, I was kind of blown away. I didn't, you know, I was like 15 and uh, was in Steamboat Springs, Colorado, which is quote unquote, you know, the wild west. And I was like, dude, this is, there's strip malls everywhere. This is not wild at all. (laughs) And uh, so, yeah, we, up in Alaska, I think we do have a real tie to that stuff. And our politics kind of 
pushes and pulls our progress, but, um, but, you know, we understand how wild things can be up there. And I think that gets to the difference in the relationship people have with nature. So nature is constantly around us in Alaska. Whereas if you go to New York, it's pretty far away. And so when we're talking about these issues of climate change, of, you know, receding shoreline, things like that, it is completely foreign to, say, someone from New York, for example. That's true. That's that's really true. And actually, that's why I'm, I'm um, thankful to people like uh, the people that work for Protect Our Winners and people like you. Um, but uh, Protect Our Winners do a really good job of kind of highlighting these things. For me, it's kind of tedious to hear like these rationales in a marketing format where it's like, look at what we can do, where I'm like, dude, we all know we can be doing more. Why isn't everyone doing things? And mm -hmm. they kind of take up the action of showing these people, these these folks from New York that um, maybe go skiing in Aspen once a year, illustrating to them how important this is. You know, if, if they're if their only outdoor experience is skiing, you know, a couple times a year, if that's their thing, like that's a real way that they can key into a changing climate, you know, so. And since we're talking about the difference in relationships with nature, I was thinking we could probably talk about your village, Aleknegeg. Yeah, for sure. Which is a village of about 200, right? Yep, a little, maybe like 300, yeah. 200 to 300 people. And it's only accessible by boat and plane. Yeah, exactly. So it's it's a little community just outside of Dillingham, which most people would know through commercial fishing. Dillingham's a pretty big hub for salmon fishing. And so we just live about 30 miles north of Dillingham. And um, so basically out there, it's um, native allotment land. So um, for example, my whole family was granted native allotment along this stretch of road. So basically I just grew up out there um, with all my family along our road. And I actually, I can speak to um, how I got into snowboarding a little bit was uh, my big brother was super into snowboarding and uh, watched like all the TB videos. And I didn't know what any of that stuff meant. I was just kind of, that was all snowboarding was to me, my brother and his videos, you know? Mm -hmm. And um, there was no chairlifts out there. And we just kind of snow machine up and down mountains, hike around. Um, and so I didn't actually get on a chairlift till I was like 13 and moved to Girdwood. Oh, but nice. I, yeah, yeah. So basically out there, um, it's a super, it's a pretty intact indigenous community. And, um, you know, I don't think a lot of pe a lot of people from Anchorage or Fairbanks really have a chance to get out to those communities very often. But um but actually the the culture is pretty intact and there's a lot of different problems just like many other indigenous communities around the world but the reality is there's so much culture that's so valuable and beautiful mm -hmm. um and uh a part of that is you know you're kind of by necessity you have to be subsistence hunting for your food um there's a grocery store there, but things are super expensive. So you pretty much have to kind of be self-sufficient out there. Um, and right now there's a pretty uh, big opposition going on to the pebble mine, which is um, if, if built, it would be the world's largest open pit uh, copper and gold mine. But uh, most people already know plenty about the pebble mine. Um, and this has been a saga going on since I was little, since I was like 10 years old. Um, and only in the last like 10 years has it gotten really big publicity thanks to mm -hmm. people like POW and Protect Our Winners. But uh, the indigenous people out there have done such an incredible job of, of opposing this with everything they got. And, um, and it's still a very real possibility. And so I think we're all watching right now and, and just trying to do as much as we can um, to talk about the downsides of this mine. How would Pebble Mine affect Aleknagig? Um, so it would affect, on a long term, um, the entire region of that area. It, it would affect the whole salmon population because these 
watersheds are extremely fragile. They're tundra um, and they're Arctic environments, which are like enormously more fragile and hard to keep intact than nearly any other place in the world. Um, and so the ramifications of these tailing ponds uh, leaching into the watershed is huge. And uh, just hands down, there's there's absolutely no reason for this mine to go through other than foreign interests like this Canadian mining company. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's about money and it's about uh, industry. It's not about the people and it's not what the people want, you know, mm -hmm. so. And circling back around to climate change, do you know how climate change is affecting the village? In our area, yeah, there's coastal erosion all over the place. Um, so that's one that probably any coastline in Alaska is experiencing. And you can see all over, even if it's on a small scale, not quite as dramatic as, you know, moving a village. But you can see that. Um, for me, the most direct uh, visual sign was this summer. And the last, actually the last two summers, um, the salmon run has been pretty healthy, but halfway through the season, the the temps were so high that that um, these salmon were experiencing like heart attacks and uh, strokes from the heat of the water. And so, even though um, you know everybody in the first part of the season was like, "Yeah, there's there's a good run," um, you know, like having a good run of salmon doesn't mean anything if the water is too warm for them to survive in. You know, mm -hmm. so that's crazy. That's something that you would not think about. I mean, not you, but the universal. Yeah, uh, remember yeah. I was talking about relationships with nature. I was born and raised in Alaska and I would never think of a fish having a heart attack or a stroke. I know, man. It's weird. I thought someone was joking with me when they told me that. I was like, yeah, doesn't make sense. Yeah. Well, and that's actually another, a good sign. Like, I feel like the, the um, these signifiers that we can see in our world um, sometimes get adulterated by like the media, um, and, and public perception and politics. And that's kind of a good example is, um, you know, the importance of seeing multiple sides of a, of a topic, like, like the salmon run, you could easily get on a tip and, and say, Hey, this is the, the biggest salmon run throughout history. So therefore the salmon are not in jeopardy, or you can look at it and be like, okay, well, there's plenty of different parts and pieces to the story and we can't just rely on one. Um, anyway, that I, I feel like that's relatable to kind of how we hear climate change in the media and kind of mm -hmm. like, well, no, look, we just got a huge dump of snow last week. So the climate change isn't real. Um, and that's just stupid. It's ignorance because there's yeah. such a bigger picture to it, you know? Well, I think that a little bit, of what that speaks to, and I'm going to totally butcher this, but there's this uh, philosophical theory. I don't remember the name of it, <laughs> um, but it's this idea that we as individuals care more about, say, a pinprick on our own fingers, you know, because that is immediate pain to our personal being rather than, say, some mass genocide in a country away from us. That makes sense. Yeah. Totally, for sure. Like just the, it has to hit home for us. Otherwise, doesn't absorb. Exactly. So what happens when climate change radically affects the livelihood of a small village? Well, yeah, for fishing, that's pretty devastating. I mean, Dillingham, the entire town of Dillingham relies on, on the salmon population. There's no other industry out there. And um that industry has helped bring money into the state from commercial fishermen coming up here in a mass migration every year to um, just every part and piece. That's a really valuable industry for us. Um, and it's actually not just us, you know, the native population and local people make up like half of half of the fishery. So it's also mm -hmm. um, a lot of other outside people that make their living off of this industry as well. But for the people on the ground, it's huge. Losing um, lo losing this livelihood, it affects the fact that you can't eat the fish you you're catching all year round. You know, if the salmon population changes, that's an actual diet that we lose. And so, um, so food uh, navigation 
when the when the rivers don't freeze up, like re- this last couple uh, months, the rivers haven't frozen in Aleknagik, the place I grew up in. And so you can't make runs to and from other villages for groceries. You can't um, you can't like make crossings that would be like a 30 mile trip. Instead, you have to go all the way around for a hundred mile trip. And so there's little little things like that that really do affect the entirety of living out there. Um, and it, what it comes down to is is if there's no industry uh, for people to make money in the summer, um, there's not enough jobs to make up for that loss of income. You know, I was talking to, um, he's a Arctic Youth Ambassador. Okay. His name is Eben Hobson, and he lives in Uktiavik. Oh, yeah. I've, I think I've heard about him, but I, I'm not sure. He was telling me this year that... Um, they hadn't gotten a whale. So they had oh. to had to keep going out farther and farther and farther. And I think it got to as far as like 60 miles, oh my you God. know, out there. Wow. And that was because of melting sea ice. Mm-hmm. Totally. Yeah, it, it, it probably affects more than we can even like ponder, you know. When it comes down to it, none of us quite know what what's going to happen next year and what what we'll see from the salmon next year, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, all of the worst case scenarios are actually pretty low consequence compared to what what actually happens in the next like ten years, you know. Mm-hmm. So anyway. So when you speak at events, do you have any anecdotes or personal experiences that you share? Yeah, I kind of i i haven't been speaking quite as much as I used to be, um, and since retirement, I've focused on coaching quite a bit. So um, I've step in, stepped a little bit back from uh, from public appearances and stuff, but but I typically when I used to do that, I would um, I didn't quite have a template. I just kind of for every event speak to something different. Could you give me an example? Oh yeah, yeah. Well, I did a lot of um, like speeches to indigenous um, organizations, and then like schools in rural Alaska, like Bethel. Um, and so when I'd go out there, basically I just kind of tell my story. I, I tell my history of where I grew up um, and the different parts and pieces that led me to being on the Olympic team. Actually, it's pretty similar to our conversation now. I think I try to highlight as best I can the fact that truly, it's not false humility here, but truly any one of us can make the Olympic team. And it's it's truly about the steps and the parts and pieces that happen um, and and the little small decisions you make along the way and every day and every month that lead to that. And so actually that's pretty similar to the climate conversation where it's not some like magical uh, thing we can change with like technology to to take carbon out of the atmosphere, but we can do things individually on a day-to-day basis um, in politics on our individual lives with this in mind you know yeah but um but yeah basically I just kind of talk about my life story and and piece it out where people can see each step that happened in order to get there which is great because I think that it gets back to what you were saying about the internet and how it's made it's made the world such a smaller place That's you know true, we, yeah. somebody in like guatemala can see what is happening in uh Aleknigig. yeah you know they, very true. and so it makes us feel a lot closer mm-hmm. that's true yeah and i guess stepping off of the climate thing and more about kind of like sports or all that um actually i think that's what's cool about our modern world now we still have some kitschy stuff on nbc and the olympic channel that kind of put heroic Olympians, which is great. You know, there, there's a lot of real hard work that goes into doing this, but at the same time, um, it's cool that we can get a chance to see some other pi- parts and pieces of athletes that we look up to um, and see like the more human parts of people, you know? Absolutely. And I, and I think that maybe, maybe to the average person, the snowboarder may not seem like an intelligent person. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> you know, and this is coming from a snowboarder. Yeah. And so I think um 
hearing someone like yourself, it throws people off and like, oh my gosh, like she's extremely intelligent. She Aww, knows exactly what she's you. talking about. Thanks, man. That's you're too nice. <laughs> 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 no, I, I appreciate that though. That is true. Like, man, just because all these, oh, I think that's a generational thing too that's changing. I think the like 80s, 90s, to me, my per perception of that is kind of like everything is kitschy and like mm -hmm. snowboarders are this way and skateboarders are this way and like um, a cowboy is like this and a oil worker is like this. And I think more and more we're kind of stepping out of our, our parents' tropes with all that stuff, you know. And really, our generation, I don't think we have a lot of like, oh, snowboarders are dumb, dude. We're like, nah, dude, my friend who's professional snowboarder goes to Harvard. So mm -hmm. it's like, yeah, yeah. By kitschy, you mean like stereotypes, like we're we're rising above the stereotypes. Yeah, exactly. I think I think we're getting a little bit further from these like, yeah, stereotypes. We're getting smarter. Yeah, hopefully, dude. <laughs> yeah, every day. Every day I I hope people pick up a book and actually read the whole thing. <laughs> yeah, dude. Well, me too, actually. Like, And that's the thing is like constant learning. We should never get to a place where anyone is sure that they know everything. You know, like mm -hmm. we're all constantly getting a little smarter in our world, progressing. And uh, that's beautiful. We don't all have to have the answers right now. We all have to be learning. I interviewed a pastor a while back, uh, a pastor from my childhood, and he said something that was weirdly reinforcing to a thought that I had that I thought was original. And he said something to the effect that the most dangerous people in the world are the ones that think they know everything. Dude, so true. I agree with that 100%. Yeah, I, I that's actually a hallmark of, of kind of my indigenous culture too that I've always appreciated is like a humility is a really important thing in life. Mm -hmm. And um, I think Trump's like a pretty great example of that right now is we can all be in our own little bubble, super egotistical, out for our life and our house and what we want and our truck and our job, but that's not the reality of of living on this planet. We can't all do that. At the end of the day, we're not going to be stoked about, you know, like the Ford Raptor we bought. We're going to be stoked about, you know, the relationships we built and the the things that we have accomplished. Yeah, yeah, 100%. So can you tell me about your transition from being a snowboarder to uh, climate advocacy? Yeah, for sure. I It was kind of an accident. I didn't intend to at all. Um, but the Pebble Mine was something that was really close to home. Um, and if, if you're from that area, you kind of can't get away from, from, uh, in some way being a part of the opposition. That's just, there's too few people. Everyone is kind of a part of it. And so back then I had, um, worked with a few different, uh, local little nonprofits that were trying to oppose the mine. And I would, um, just do whatever I could from, like lending my picture to be on this flyer, um, to just whatever whatever I could if there was an opportunity. And um, I got an opportunity to write an op-ed piece for the New York Times in 2011. And that was a pretty big, big thing that just kind of just materialized. It didn't, didn't uh, I think we had been working on it for like a month beforehand, but um, but then as soon as that was published, I think that was the first time Pow had reached out to me and um, and then invited me to be an ambassador. And then that from that point, I had definitely involved myself a lot more through Pow with environmental things all across the board from like um, fossil fuel extraction to the climate march to any of the number of things they do. Um, but then in addition, I've always kind of been like on the radical side of of liberal politics probably and like I have a huge family of people with many different political views and and um I'm not like a staunch liberal by any means but I'm definitely on the like on the more radical side of things and so I've always gone to protests um like I've lived in Salt Lake City for for seven years and so I 
have kind of my circle of friends is into social justice and, and, and activism and stuff like that. So over the last like seven years, I've just kind of put my spare time to like uh, being a part of these different things. And so it's, it's not that I'm like an activist, quote unquote. It's just, I think it's kind of funny when people use that, that term, like I'm an activist, but the mm -hmm. reality is we're all like, we all have an opinion about our world and we don't, again, we don't need to be labeled as anything. It's just, everyone should be talking about stuff, you know? Oh, absolutely. And I think that the people who think that they are not advocates of something have been told that they aren't True. and they subscribe to maybe a political leaning or something else That's that true. has told them that they're fine with the status quo. Right. Right. hundred percent. Yeah. But yeah, overall, I just, I care about the environment and if I have a platform to use and, and people, um, want to highlight that I'm a hundred percent willing to, to do whatever I can. Was there a moment when you were like, I need to get involved with this? And it seems like that yeah. started with Pebble Mine. It definitely was Pebble Mine. Um, that was just like such a behemoth, like just the power, like the, especially with a community like the Bristol Bay um, region and a native corporation that also opposes it. You know, a lot of times in Alaska, we can get into these contentious arguments with like, Oh, that that tribe wants oil drilled there, or no, that tribe uh, is not opposed to that mine. But I think why my call to do something about Pebble, which um, there's a lot more people that have done way more to oppose this than I have. That was just a really small thing that I did, but um, the reason why it was it was so important was because um, a lot of times the conversation gets clouded by this rhetoric about native populations wanting something or not wanting something or who gets money out of this or who doesn't. And for this particular case study, um, it, it's clear the power that these mining companies have. It's kind of like this really interesting uh, example of even with local opposition, with nationwide opposition, with worldwide opposition, with literally to the point where um, like Patagonia is doing international campaigns against this and lot huge efforts to lobby against this mine on a Alaska scale, on a nationwide scale. The amount of effort to stop this mine is so incredibly huge. And the, mm -hmm. the amount of people that support the opposition is huge. And still it's on the table. And to see our local um, democracy fail and see our, our modern politics literally trump anything at a local level that people do or do not want, it's just like angry making. You know, there's, there's really, there's, it's so clear how this mind should not happen. It's so clear. And yet it continues to be pushed for at the highest level of politics, all the way up to Trump, you know? What are people that advocate for the mine saying? Um, most of it relies on like economic impacts and claims of job opportunities. And um, that, I don't know the exact concrete numbers, but um, but the the job opportunity actually is not as quite as like big as 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 those that talk about it. But actually, I don't actually know many people that are um, championing the mine. I think as far as my lens is, and I'm, I no longer live in Alaska right now, but um, but it, it seems that it's more of a political, um, a political and industrial thing. And I don't know many people that are actually thinking this would bring jobs to the region, you know. Mm -hmm. And even if it did, what we'd be dealing with is short-term effects versus long-term effects, right? Exactly. So, sh yeah. so short-term effects, yeah, there's going to be this uh, big boom in jobs for a short amount of time. But mm -hmm. in the long term, there's going to be no fish. Right. And it's going to totally devastate an entire culture in that area. Mm -hmm. Perfectly well said. Totally. So getting back to snowboarding really quick. Yeah. One of the reasons why I got out of snowboarding 
was because at a certain point I felt like it was selfish. Like the the act of snowboarding itself is to bring me personal joy and to have left something for me that I felt was a little selfish and frivolous to doing, say, these podcasts where I'm talking to someone like you who we're talking about climate change. You know, we're talking about Pebble Mine. Like these are real issues that affect people on a larger scale than just me personally. You know, this is this is everyone's livelihood, not even happiness, rather than, you know, I got that first descent. Right. Totally. Yeah, I I fully agree with that. And I've definitely experienced that same all those same mechanisms you're talking about. I spent almost 10 years on the team and on the US team and um it felt extremely important to me and it, it you know it's will always be important to me but um but yeah you kind of mature and you grow and you see many different things to do in the world and um it does start to feel a little bit selfish of focusing on on yourself but for me I honestly did my whole career I kind of did um feel feel like a need to represent my native community and that kind of made actually made it a lot easier for me to to engage on the world cup and and like made it um like kind of made things make sense in my brain for why i was there at each event um but yeah it feels it, it was a huge game changer for me to involve myself with protect our winners and definitely felt like a little bit of uh um, kind of reality check of of we can focus on on ourselves all we want, but the reality is this is there's a lot more going on in the world that we need to pay attention to right now. You know, weren't you the first Alaska native to be in the Olympics? I was, yeah, yeah, and that's unofficial. I don't know. I, I think like it's pretty um, certain, but. I don't think that there's any known blood quantum from Inuit people. We'll say it that way. <laughs> and, you know, looking at it from that perspective, I think that it makes your involvement in snowboarding a lot less frivolous than, say, mine. <laughs> Aww, no. Well, because, because I think that you have other Alaska Native boys and girls looking up to you and when you have someone that is like you doing something you're like I can do that I really appreciate that Cody yeah I think that kind of fed my career for a long time um and um and actually just to be honest I I had uh my brother was shot um just a few months ago in August out at fish camp in rural Alaska and so he he was shot with an AR15 and, um, and to be honest, like my experience as a native person has been really similar to, I'm sure a lot of people out there, um, in these little rural villages. Um, I think you're exposed to quite a lot. You're exposed to this beautiful side of our culture that is hard to put into words. It's one of the most important things in my life, my culture but then there's also this very real side of poverty and um, and strife and like struggle, and so um, so that's something that like I experienced my whole life that that realness of what goes on in some villages with alcohol abuse and all kinds of different stuff, and so for me, I, you know, I got a lot of strength from my community um, and parts of my career where I really did feel, feel like quitting. Um, and I was able to kind of, kind of gain some strength from my community. So, so for me, you know, those boys and girls that listen to me speak are as much important in my life as, um, I hope I was in theirs. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And is your brother okay? Sorry, Cody. I wasn't gonna bring that up. Sorry. <laughs> okay, it's okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, he's 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 okay. But uh, good. I'm glad to hear that. 
Here, I'll say that again, so I'm not crying on the air. Sorry. No, no, you're no, you're you're totally good, and we can move on. I, you oh, know, no, I have it's other okay. questions. No, it's all right. No, no, this was this was good, but no, and you don't have to include that in it if it's kind of a weird tidbit too. But if it was helpful, feel free to. But um, but yeah, no, he's he's totally okay now. But that's kind of you know, there's a lot of real things that people in these villages experience, and um. Yeah, I, I I hope to allow people to see some of these lenses in my life, kind of. You know what I think of in moments like that where you're away from your family and you're away from your loved ones when something like that happens, when something potentially tragic and you want to be there to support your family is when you are in Salt Lake, do you feel like and when you're doing these talks and climate advocacy, do you feel like you are championing your home and your people? Yeah, I really do. Um, and I think I'm I'm such a small piece. Like my my impact is is as much as I can do at any given time, but it's still a really small piece that I can lend. But I do kind of feel, I feel a need. I've spent quite a lot of my life away from from my community and competing and and snowboarding, and I do feel kind of an imperative that I engage in that way. So yeah, I uh, I always keep Alaska close to my heart wherever I'm at, and and try to. I'm an Alaskan no matter where I live. So mm -hmm. in the end, uh, just try to lend my voice as well. That's really great. I, I had a conversation with Jesse Bertner a while back, and I asked him about when he moved to Seattle from Alaska. He moved oh, yeah, out of yeah. Alaska, and he said something along the lines of exactly what you said, is you ex export your culture. You know, you are a representative of Alaska. I like that. That's totally fitting because, yeah, I don't – there's a lot of us that kind of relocate um, – and I held on to my Alaska ID for as long as I could, actually. I just got a new ID uh, mm -hmm. last year. <laughs> it makes you unique. You know, no matter where you move to, um, if you're Alaskan, people call you Alaska. Yeah, it's true, right? They do. Yeah, it's kind of, um, well, we do. Going back to the climate thing, actually, that it's true. We all probably do have this kind of unique tie to seeing what Alaska is. And even if you move away... If you've been there, you've been there, you know, so mm -hmm. 100%. I like that. So if it's okay with you, I'd like to talk a little about when you came out publicly as gay. Yeah, for sure. So you came out during the 2014 Olympics in Sochi, Russia, in mm -hmm. support of the protests against the Olympics being in Russia because of their anti-gay laws. Right. That's true. Yeah. What was the result of coming out publicly in that way? Um, for me, actually, I haven't experienced any negativity really um, in my life about about coming out in 2014. Or I was kind of publicly out to people that I knew, not on a, um, not in like a format like on ESPN, like I did in 2014. But uh, but I, everyone that was around me kind of knew more or less that I was gay, and I haven't honestly experienced anything bad. Um, I think there was a little bit of backlash when there was an Anchorage Daily News story about it. Um, and I think a few people were like, mind your business, you're a snowboarder, don't, we don't care what you have to think. But overall, it was a really good response. And I had really good support from the U.S. team with that piece. And then, um, yeah, I don't think, probably didn't surprise most people, actually. <laughs> but uh but yeah, overall, really, really good support about that whole thing. Um, and for me about being an activist, quote unquote, or whatever that, that means, um, I have just always felt like I needed to lend my truth. And so it's not like I uh, intentionally was um, trying to do anything, any pieces along the way from the pebble mine uh, activism to POW to um, to being outspoken about the Russian 
uh, LGBT laws, it's not intentional. It just kind of, um, I've always said yes and um, engaged with lending my truth to a situation. And for that, that uh, ESPN piece, for me, I, I really had a problem with um, the idea of being somewhere and then as a rule of the of the place where I'm at, having to silence my truth. For me, that was probably the one thing I can't stand is silencing my truth. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I, ju- I just thought of this. It seems like in the research that I've done and the reading that I've done online and the things that I've watched and then now having talked to you, you have this like multi-dimensional like identity, right? Like when somebody looks at you, they're not going to be like, oh, there's the the gay snowboarder. (laughs) You know, they're they're not going to think that. (laughs) But for a lot of people, being gay is their identity. That's true. Yeah, that is true. Yeah, it's interesting. I've always, um, I haven't like really held tight to any one of my identities. That's definitely like, now I'm getting philosophical again, but kind of my ethos, if I have one, is um, like trying to not deny any one part of myself or hold on or latch on to one of them, but hold them all collectively. That's Mm -hmm. kind of my strategy for going through life. So, Do you know where that comes from? Maybe my culture, I, I can't say for sure that that's where it comes from, but we definitely, like the Ubik culture, as far as I've been taught from my grandpa, my family, and we're kind of traditionally nomadic family culture. So each, you know, we all, you might hear other Native people say that they believe a different variation of something like this, but from my family, I've always been taught um, about consciousness. And I guess that's my... Um, kind of interpretation of my my upbringing, but the hallmark of what I've seen in my culture is consciousness and um, awareness. And so for me, maybe I just internalize that to myself, but yeah. Yeah, that's great. A lot of great things. I'm waxing poetic. Don't make me sound dumb, Cody. No, I, I, love, <laughs> I love poetry and philosophy. All right. So it's right up my alley. All right, sweet. So that that does it for my questions. And I know that when we spoke on the phone the other day, you were like trying to think or you told me that you were trying to think of, you know, subjects to talk about and everything. Is there anything that we didn't cover that you wanted to talk about? No, actually, I think that was like perfect. It was super natural. And I think we flowed into everything. That was awesome. Well, that's great, yeah. Callan. Yeah. Uh, it's it's been an honor to have you on the podcast. Man, thank you so much for having me, Cody. I appreciate it. It's funny to talk to you now too as adults because uh, I have this image of you at, like hiking up like the Glacier Bowl or something, but I yeah, haven't seen you since I was like 11 probably. At Borderline Camp, you said, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I just remember seeing, you know, because like I think you were a pro back then, right? Or you kind of... I, I was... Spa- yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was like, kind of starstruck. I'd be like, oh, those are the pros over there. <laughs> and so how do you feel now? Because you, you've made it exponentially farther than I ever did. Well, no. You know, as well as I do, the Olympics. And there's so many different types of snowboarding. And they're all a different trajectory, different path. So, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, what that just reminded me of is I talked to Rosie Man Carey a while back on the podcast and she said that she wasn't excited for the Olympics as she was about the competitions on her circuit, Mm -hmm. you know, because those were uh, about proving herself to her peers Mm. rather than just being on this worldwide stage. Right. Right. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I probably agree. Well, it just doesn't quite for me and what it felt like for me was that it it didn't feel um it felt like a like a show that's a good a a good word for it and so Mm -hmm. it's hard to really internalize your performance especially if it's your first one which you know I've only been to one but um but yeah for me that was it's such a show it's such a big thing that you're not quite ready I'm, I'm sure your second Olympics might be 
a bit different, but but for your first, you are such a deer in headlights on that first one. It's hard to gauge kind of performance, but but yeah, I mean, it was it was um it's a little bit of everything. Like it's equally one of the biggest, like most impressive and um, fulfilling moments of your life where, where you finally, you've like accomplished this thing that like has been an abstract, but you've been, you know, incrementally working towards. So it's equally just grounding and flooring and, and mind blowing and all of those things. And then there's a large part of it, I think, where you hold the Olympics as this this big thing in your mind for so long that it probably doesn't match up to whatever you imagined it to be. That mm -hmm. might be true from, from my experience, definitely. And just like anything, you know, I'm sure if you've watched NASCAR on TV your whole life and then you go to a actual track, I don't, I mean, maybe there's a, maybe it doesn't look so, so cool uh, as it does on TV, but I'm sure it's like that with any kind of a giant event like that. There's plenty of, the mundane behind the scenes that are not quite as cool as it looks on the surface, you know? Well, and I think that it has a lot to do with the average person's reaction to the Olympics. You know, mm -hmm. there's something in that name and there's something about that, uh, the extravagance of that event. Mm -hmm. And so you grow up uh, thinking about or hearing from like, oh, mom and dad want to watch ice skating. Yeah. You know, yeah. they want to watch the figure skating. And so, so you know that it's important to them. And so either consciously or subconsciously, you're like, it's probably gets down to something like super Freudian. <laughs> like right, I right. want to, you know, I want to impress my parents and right. I want my dad to say he's proud of me. <laughs> <laughs> it's true, dude. Yeah, I'm sure. But then, you know, it's funny though, because I've talked to quite a bit of um, like former Olympians, you know, and sometimes I I hate it. I hate listening to us talk because it, it does end up sounding like a bunch of jaded Olympians talking, you know, like, oh. Um, but it's it's funny. I was just talking the other week to another coach um, for the place I work for. And um, we we're kind of kind of hating on the Olympics briefly, just about some of the more mundane and and um, political sides of it and kind of. And then at the end of it, we couldn't help but like both smile at how, you know, you can't relinquish the magic that it holds. And every mm -hmm. year when it comes on, I think there's a part of me that hurts a little bit in my stomach. Like, oh, I still had more to do. But you can't relinquish no matter how cynical I get or, you know, how much better I would have liked to perform at the Olympics I went to. You really, that seed of magic is just impossible to quelch. Like it's it's there's a piece of me that watches the olympics and i'm like oh it's such a marketing show it's political but goddamn it like moves me every time mm -hmm. <laughs> you just said that i feel like i had more to do and i feel like that's a common thing with even the most successful people True. you know with with authors that wrote 20 books they're like i could have written 30 books yeah true true you know that's pretty true. I bet everyone kind of feels that no matter what level you're at. You're like, God damn it. If only I had another year, dude. <laughs> well, because you you hit this kind of flow state at a certain point and you're like, it just becomes natural to do it. Yeah. Yeah. It feels good. It feels like it's your, it's your golden zone. Exactly. Yeah. Well, sweet. Yeah. Thank you for the conversation. This has been awesome. For more information about how you can support local grassroots journalism, go to www.patreon.com slash crude magazine. Crude Conversations is written, hosted, and produced by me, Cody Liska, for Crude Magazine. Music was produced by Alcoda Beats. 